Hello there, it's Chappie, your British butler. And here I am again. Once again, I'm sitting in the host chair for Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese. And we're well into the hundreds now. And uh, let, let's just check. I'm, I'm going to cautiously and slowly count the number of gnomes. Because I buy a gnome every week and I count the number of gnomes just to make sure, just to keep me honest, that uh, I have the right number of uh, Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese podcast episodes. So if you haven't listened to this before, uh, this is a little vehicle for nonsensical and whimsical delight. It is a portal, uh, not a portal but a portal of humour and escapism, basically. And that is, the, uh, that is the mantra of Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese. Everything has the tongue firmly encased within the cheek. Uh, they're trying not to be too serious. Occasionally we have uh, a little more serious episodes on uh, days that we like to remember or serious topics, or maybe I just have a rant. Um, but uh, that, is the, uh, that is the nature of the podcast. I mean, let it wash over you. It's like almost like having a glass of champagne in a jacuzzi and the uh, bubbles are basically going up your Tchaikovsky. Uh, that is what it. Uh, that is what the podcast entails, and that is the uh, amazement of the podcast. Uh, we have 103 previous episodes. For the last couple of weeks, we became a little bit indulged within the English football, and I just wanted to say this: the three lines did very well to reach the final, and it went to penalty kicks, and it's a flip of the coin, and some young nerves prevented. The, uh, the teams from uh, from the team from winning the uh, overall tournament, but they've done so much better than they ever have. Well, for 55 years anyway. So it was an amazing achievement. It was slightly disappointing, but you know what? I had two or three weeks of unbridled sporting joy, and there's nothing better than sport to take your mind off things. Not that I, you know, first world problems and all. You know, it's uh, you know, I have to press a couple of extra shirts or wash a dirty pair of underpants as a, being a butler it entails um, so you know it's, it's really is first world problems I'm not uh, I'm not sifting to find uh, water I'm not in the desert constantly seeing mirages and can't find uh, uh, can't find any water there's plenty of water here there's gin and tonic if I want it there's plenty of tea to keep one occupied and awake uh, for these uh, two hours a week or so that we have the podcast so we have one normally on a friday one on a saturday uh, and occasionally we have one uh, in between i mean last week we had one on a wednesday and one on a friday and uh, and we were going to do another one um but you know what sometimes you just need to uh put your knotted handkerchief on your head dip your toes in the water and just relax for a little bit take a breath you know slip on those rose-colored spectacles and uh, enjoy the summer breeze as uh, is it Seals and Croft, Summer Breeze, or the Isley Brothers, maybe. Anyway, so the podcast is audio. We do have a little jukebox musical emporium as well. Uh, so that's uh, something to enjoy. But yeah, so last week, went down to the British Bulldog Pub in Denver, and it was packed to the rafters. There were about 75 people behind me about uh, maybe a hundred in front 
and uh, they wouldn't uh, initially let in children. Uh, then they did, and then we couldn't reserve seats for extra people. So you know, it's a little bit of a um, a little bit of a uh, S show, so to speak. But um, Slattery's the Irish pub in Greenwood Village here in Colorado did a marvelous show. Um, but there was a table of Italians. I mean, there was some uh, greasy locks there. Uh, there was uh, a lot of passion, a lot of talking with the hands. It must have been an Italian table. So, you know, they came off better. Um, I, I wonder if they tried the full English breakfast, though. Because they should have done. They should have immersed themselves in the English breakfast to see you know, what the British, uh, what the English have to offer uh, on the football stadium. And what better to kick off and start a game of football than having a heavy laden full English breakfast right in the middle of your tummy. I mean, that if, you, if, if, if the blood sausage goes down the wrong way, you're not going to be able to move. And that could have been the problem. Maybe the young guns had too much blood pudding in their tummies and they couldn't take those penalty kicks. So today on the program, uh, we're going to be looking at maybe sword and goat yoga. Saw some, uh, saw, you know, maybe five or six people. Uh, they pulled their swords out of their sheaths. No, Mr. No, Mr. Yes, no, Mr. No, yes, no, Mrs. Yeah, they pulled the swords out of the sheaths and they were doing their downward dogs onto the swords. Um, anyway, we're going to be looking at that later uh, and discussing that. Is that a good idea? Yoga's meant to be relaxing. Uh, not sure if that would be particularly relaxing as well. So we know the land of the free and the brave being the US. Uh, my opinion on uh, a little bit of that. Um, talking about that a little bit later could be quite controversial. Uh, and also the ultimate uh, manhood measuring competition. Um, again, we're not. It's just a little bit of a ticklish joke. Okay, we're not. Uh, we're not actually measuring anything. Um, but there's a couple of billionaires out there who, I mean, what they're trying to do at the moment is basically measuring their winkles. Uh, that's what I'm going to say about that. Uh, now football's over. Maybe we need to forget about football for a while. I know the football season's right around the corner, English Premier League and all. But uh, why don't we try to take up another sport? And I'll be introducing you to another sport uh, a little bit later on. Um, Again, on this podcast, we do not follow a, a strict script or order of play. The batting order can change on a, on a, on a toss of the coin. So uh, be ready for subjects to be dropped and appear in later episodes, maybe this weekend, maybe in the future, maybe around Christmas time, maybe on our thousandth episode, if we ever, if, if we ever reach a thousand. Uh, our Morris men, our Brackley Morris men are looking for new recruits. Uh, maybe we'll talk about that later as well. Also, Bordeaux sees red as Emmanuel Macron backs Burgundy for French wine capital. Oh, are posh eggs worth the cost? Uh, moths do a whole lot of damage to our glad rags. And why nosy neighbors love next door. Uh, and uh, also discovered a new astrology app as well, which is quite interesting. And I found the most delicious item I think I've ever seen. Um, people like, you know, in the UK like putting everything in a sandwich, like a chip butty, uh, fries in a sandwich, basically. Uh, but I found the greatest sandwich ever, uh, mixing the wonderful sandwich with one of my other 
delicious delights that I absolutely love to consume all the time. And the two uh, mighty elements are added together. It's like Merlin and a sword coming together in one culinary delight. So Facial ID aims to stop brazen bears in their track. Facial recognition technology for bears is being trialed in a town on Japan's northern island of Hokkaido in an attempt to identify troublemakers that keep entering towns and cities. The South Shire Taco Brown Bear Information Center is in Shibetsu, has also has cameras on trails used by bears and will use artificial intelligence to analyze photographs to identify individuals and behavior patterns. About 30 pictures of their faces were required to accurately identify them by distances between the eyes and noses, uh, but this has proved difficult so far. Only 20 photos of successfully captured faces leading to a probable identification of four individual brown bears. If used in tandem with AI facial recognition, uh, exterminating only individual bears that cause trouble would not be impossible, says uh, Yoshio Fujimoto, the center's director, told uh, Manashimi Shimbun, the daily newspaper, we hope that these kinds of efforts will spread across the Hokkaido uh, because male bears have a wide range of movement, but we need to accumulate photo data and compile a database first. Uh, last Friday, 24 stone brown bear, that's a big lad, uh, through, uh, rampaged through Hokkaido's capital city of Sapporo, injuring four people, including a guard at a military base. A uh, video showing the animal forcing its way through the gate of the base, appearing to bite the shoulder on the thigh. These are some randy bears, I have to say. Bear attacks have been on a rise in Japan in recent years, which experts believe is partly explained by the decline in the rural population and is particularly the lack of children who are usually noisy enough to keep the animals away. So that's the key uh, to uh, have a whole school next to where the bears come in and then the uh, furry friends will be uh, scared away. Experts also concerned that the animals appear to have been less wary of humans. In October, a bear walking into a shopping center in Ishikara prefecture and hid inside for 13 hours. Uh, nearly 14,000 sightings of bear were, bears were reported between April and September last year, up 70%. I mean, a lot of these bears are coming into the cities uh, because all the restaurants are uh, shut during lockdown. So they normally uh, go foraging uh, at the restaurant uh, rubbish bins, trash cans for food. With all, of those sh with all of those shut during lockdown, they came into the cities. But I have to admit, when I first saw this article about the bears, I thought we were talking about uh, hairy, hirsute gay men. I thought those are the two the bears we're talking about. When we're talking about rampant, rampaging uh, hairy bears in Japan, I thought it was—I uh, I thought it could have been some sort of drunken uh, gay orgy uh, with bears stampeding into uh, into the city centres, um, you know, looking looking for sun, fun, and frolics. But you know, I, I don't know. I know they identify sharks sometimes. Um, because obviously they all look very similar, but on the scars. So, you know, I'm wondering if you could, either for our furry uh, grizzly friends or our hirsute uh, uh, gay friends, uh, maybe start facial recognition and facial ID. You could maybe start doing some sort of recognition based on back hair. Or maybe, you know, for the older gentleman, the nasal and ear hair. 
rather than looking at the faces. Because, you know, some men are a little bit more uh, hair suit and hairy than others with nostril hair coming out. And uh, pretty specific back hair. I know that sometimes if I let uh, if I let the hair grow, it forms like a heart shape. So the heart shape on my back could identify me uh, from any other uh, furry mammal out there. Not saying a bear, but uh, any other furry mammal. So, I mean, instead of looking at the faces, because um, according to some people, all men over 40 look very, very similar. Well, I haven't got the beard or anything, um, but that may be a new way of identifying uh, maybe rampant bears who are rummaging around in trash cans looking for extra food and looking for possibly delight and fun is uh, facial recognition instead of facial recognition uh, look look for hair recognition on the back um, you know and protruding other areas as well potentially uh, that could be the uh, that could be the the way that the uh, authorities could start IDing our body bears with the extra Barbarossa. So on my way into Denver the other day, I saw probably half a dozen people in a parking lot uh, wielding swords. The closer I looked, I then saw they were doing some sort of sword yoga that I'd never seen before. So I did a little bit of research and discovered a sword isn't just a weapon. A sword is Zen philosophy. For example, Chinese sword Jan is an object of force, of value. Its blade is an extension of the spine where the power of your mind lies. You and the blade make one whole. The art of sword wielding is the art of balance. This could be a problem for me because I have a trouble of, you know, bouncing up on one leg um, without some sort of stool under my leg or something. The art of a sword wielding is an art of balance, control over five sense organs and emotions, concentration of the mind, that could be my biggest issue because I'm very easily distracted. The blade of a sword is a view of the mind of its extension. So I think my mind may be a little bit blunt and not have the sharpness of the sword. The way you wield a sword reflects your state of mind. Very slowly and very carefully, I think, in my sense, in my case. Any awkward movement and you can hurt yourself. So practicing with a sword is possible only in absolute silence. Again, I don't think I'm ever silent. Uh... I'm sort of an old windbag, basically. It's impossible to relax and interact with the sword at one and at the same time. It's an art of faultless activity in the stream of force. From its very beginning, we study one movement after another. This is in sword yoga. And then the movements become one single whole. And then the process disappears, dissolves, action turns into meditation. I don't think I could ever be very relaxed if I was wielding a sword whilst yogaring or yogiing. Is it yogaing, yogiing, performing yoga, probably. And so, you know, these people were in the parking lot and they weren't necessarily socially distanced or, or in this case, sword distance. I mean, what happens if one sword, when you pull it out of the sheath, is longer than the other? I mean, you don't want a long, thick sword poking you unnecessarily, do you? I mean, that could be absolutely awful. I mean, you don't want to be impaled on the sword. I mean, some people might just uh, just bring along one of those short swords that they can have in their mouth, because they do that as well. I mean, what? Wh when does uh, sword yoga become sword swallowing? I mean, that's something else. I mean, forget the sword yoga. The sword swallowing is a whole different kettle of fish. 
Um, I mean, being worried about impaling yourself with your yoga teammates is one thing, but sticking a sword down your throat. I mean, if it's if it's a sort of long sword, isn't there some sort of like gagging reflex? How how can you firstly relax your throat enough because you know a sword's going down it, and then avoid some sort of gagging reflex? I mean, I have trouble with a long spear of asparagus going going down my throat and causing a gagging reflex, let alone a sword. But the sword, the whole sword yoga thing, I mean, you have to be. It's like some sort of uh, dance. I mean, if you look at hip-hop dancing, everybody's in sync. Uh, formation dancing or square dancing, line dancing, everybody is in sync. When it comes to, uh, when it comes to sword yoga, though, uh, I mean, you, you definitely have to be watching what your partner's doing. Or you're going to have a rapier at the bottom. And you don't want that. You don't want to... You don't want some sort of jousting situation to happen where you're impaled on the end of somebody's sword. That would not be good. But good on them. I don't think I could be relaxed enough to wield a sword in that sort of way. Uh, but that was that was going on. It was there was sword yoga. Now I'd be worried to introduce goat yoga and sword yoga together. It, it, it sounds like a bit like an abattoir if that even happens. I mean, the, I'm sure the goats are smarter than us they probably wouldn't want to get close to the sword or they might become a lambiriani i mean that would uh, th that would definitely be uh, an issue and i mean when you everybody who was doing the the yoga the other day with the swords they were just wearing flimsy sort of linen and shorts and everything if it was me i would want to probably slip on some chain mail or something just as protection i mean it doesn't matter about the chainmail stopping my movements and flexibility. I'm inflexible as it is, and probably pretty clumsy. If I was to do anything along the lines of sword yoga, then I would need full chainmail. Uh, probably, um, I would want to be winched in the air like Henry VIII as well, and uh, maybe a full suit of, suit of armor as well. Certainly over my face, I think, because I would hate for a sharp sword to be prod through the eye and die the death of uh, Harold at the uh, Battle of Hastings, something along those lines. But anyway, if you're a, if you're a brave sort, a brave soul, and you want to downward dog, uh, all do the flying eagle position with a sword in your hand, then that is an activity out there just for you. Just watch out, you might become a pincushion. Okay, so I was reading a fascinating piece about the drones in a beehive. So you've got the drone bees, the male bees, worshipping the queen bee, doing all the work, all the hard labor. I mean, this is, the, this is the polar opposite of how humans live their life. There's no glass, there's no honeycomb ceiling uh, for the female bee for the queen bee in the hive there is in human life and across across the planet and amongst mammals as well to some degree but with the humble drone bee they work all the hours that god sends working for the female i mean you basically got 
Queen Elizabeth of Bees, Queen Bee. Or, like, or maybe more like a Margaret Thatcher. A strict uh, matriarch bossing around all these mummy boy bees. That's, that's really what it is. And she's directing them. Uh, they're uh, collecting the pollen, bringing the pollen back. Um, back to the honeycomb, back to the nest. And listening to the instructions of the matriarch Queen Bee. I mean, it's a, it's a little bit like Margaret Thatcher's cabinet, full of a bunch of wet men. And uh, she's directing them. That's the Queen Bee. She's a sort of strict uh, Hillary Clinton-esque, Margaret Thatcher type of bee, organizing her drone workers, who probably only have a few brain cells between them. Um, but that is the life of a poor drone. Um, it's almost like the, the, the chap's being sent down the coal mine. But they weren't, you know, these bees aren't given a Cornish pasty. Who knows what they're given? Hopefully they, uh, hopefully they have a, you know, stop for like a, a little elixir of nectar or something along those lines. One would hope that the queen would uh, feed them and please them the best they can. But that's a, I mean, that that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of drones for one, for one queen. But she's keeping, she's keeping control of the whole, uh, the whole nest, so to speak. But it was in, in, in my in my sense, though, th this was the case. Male bees die after mating. That's basically their life. So they're like the uh, the gigolos, uh, the Ron Jeremy's of uh, of drone bees. Um, you know, the John Holmes of uh, of uh, bee lovemaking, basically. So male bees die after mating. That's basically their life. They uh, they work. They provide for the uh, for the queen bee. They mate with the queen bee, and that's silonsi. That's it. That's it. That's that's finito for them. That's basically their life. So, in the case of the male bees, the drones working their skin to the bone for the uh, for the queen bee to provide all luscious honey for a. Uh, for mummy and all, it's honey, nut, cheerio. So after the football, let's take up another sport. There's plenty of golf this weekend. Golf's a fun sport. It's individual. You don't have to rely on your teammates. Um, some say it's a, a ruination of a good walk, um, but that's one sport you can take up. But I plead with you. I, I, I present the case to the jury about the game croquet now to me croquet takes me back to those harlequin days of uh being at boarding school and uh mr barrett fully uh yeah probably a little bit of a seersucker suit on but with uh, full regalia behind him full robes uh maybe the uh the mortarboard as well um a fairly rotund fellow um who you know, a croquet mallet uh, looked like he was holding a spoon in his hand. But he's a big chap. Always squeezed into an old MG uh, that was uh, probably uh, 20 sizes too small for him. So he, you know, always squeezed into a uh, British Racing Green MG sports car, right-hand drive. And uh, he would uh, he squeeze himself in there. And it was, uh, it was like let, letting out uh, sardines out of a, a, of a can at the end. 
sardines packed into a can. That's Mr. Barrett getting out. But he also loved croquet. And uh, croquet is a very civilized game where you worry about probably the clotted cream falling out of your uh, falling out of your scone, uh, making sure the jam isn't too runny, uh, trying to avoid stains on, you probably will be dressed in whites, uh, finding ways of getting out those, uh, those dirty imskas type of grass stains on the trousers. I mean, that's the type of game it is. You're, you're always thinking about afternoon tea. You're always thinking about the sandwiches uh, being cut into triangles um, and uh, keeping everything very pristine. But um, croquet is a little bit more aggressive and cunning and competitive than one would even imagine. So one of the most amusing things about croquet is how everybody plays to marginally different rules. Says so Jean-Jacques, he's the eighth generation of the family who polarized the game uh, in the 1860s. At the highest level, there's the association croquet. Golf croquet is easier and is widely played in many clubs. And then there's garden croquet, a simplified form of the association's croquet. This does have official rules, although in practice, it's likely to be idiosyncratic as your family. It's not uncommon to see a couple who've grown up playing different rules. Depending on how competitive, argumentative, or well-lubricated they are, makes for endlessly entertaining games. So here, for the sake of argument, are the simplified rules of garden croquet, according to the World Croquet Federation. And it's quite a long book, but I summarize. The aim. Two sides compete to get their balls, either red, yellow, or blue, or black. You don't want the blue balls. They'll probably never get through the hoop. You can never insert them through the hoop. To the peg by hitting them through the hoops with their mallets. Uh, And then the kit. Four mallets, four balls, six hoops, and a peg. The uh, lawn. The croquet lawn should be 17.5 meters by 14 meters with a peg in the center and hoops laid out as, as a, you know, around probably in a, in a uh, rectangular uh, type of uh, setup. If your garden is smaller, simply scale down the scoring. Each hoop run or pass through the, score, through the hoop scores one point, as does hitting the final peg. So the winner will be the first side to score 14, one point per hoop, and the peg per ball. So, how to play. The first side strikes one of their balls towards the hoop. If the ball clears the first hoop, then you take another shot. If not, play passes to the other side. All four balls must be played in the first four turns. After that, each side can decide which of their balls to play. If your balls hit another ball, you can earn two extra shots. This is the really fun part of croquet is about disadvantaging your opponent as much as advancing your own game. And that's called the roquet. And that can be the most aggressive part of uh, croquet. The first of your extra shots must be taken where the knock ball has ended up. Place your ball so it's touching the other ball and play your shot. The second is played from where your ball ends up. That is the simple rules of croquet. Um, But you know what? Everybody lives for the scones lists of the sandwiches and uh and tries to avoid any nasty grass stains you always take a stain devil with you a little bit of grass stains or, or strawberry jam down the whites uh, make sure you apply uh the stain removal immediately uh, so you don't have a nasty red stain or a green smear of grass down your left trouser leg uh, but they're the rules of croquet so if you want to forget football uh, for the final part of the summer then take up the delicious, 
gentlemanly, English elegant sport, with just that hint of aggression when you roquet somebody else's ball into a pond, then croquet is a game for you. So we have another enigmatic English eccentric tradition in this case. So it's a special day in the UK called St. Swithin's Day. It's July the 15th, so it's yesterday. A day on which, according to folklore, the weather for a subsequent period is dictated. In popular belief, if it rains on St. Swithin's Day, 40 days of fair weather will follow. St. Swithin was a bishop of Winchester from 852 to 862. And as is his request, he was buried in the churchyard where rain and the steps of passerbys might fall on his grave. According to his legend, after his body was moved from the cathedral on July the 15th, 971, a great storm ensued. The first textual evidence for the weather prophecy appears to come from the 13th or 14th century in a manuscript at Emmanuel College, Cambridge. Weather frequently changes around midsummer, and thus the tradition this day influences the weather may stem from earlier, possibly pre-Christian beliefs. On the European continent, similar beliefs are attached to St. Medard, which is in June the 8th in France. If you're on your summer holidays or looking forward to breaking up from school, you're probably hoping for a bit of sun. So St. Swithin's Day and 40 days of rain isn't really ideal. The poem goes like this, though. St. Swithin's Day, if it does rain, full 40 days it will remain. If St. Swithin's Day it is fair for 40 days, twill rain no more. No one really takes the prediction literally. In fact, few take it very seriously. Weather experts say that since records began in 1861, there has never been a record of 40 dry days or 40 wet days in a row following St. Swithin's Day. So during the semi-finals of the Euros, um, and then the final, nearly 50 million people in halftime turned their tea kettles on to make a cup of tea during the halftime period. 7.2 million Brits have never cleaned their tea kettle, uh, plus the cleanest age group is revealed. We're a dirty bunch, aren't we? New research has shown that the nation's kitchen cleaning habits aren't too hot. A study by Wren Kitchens quiz the UK, how often they clean their specific items and identified the cleanest age group, which comes as a surprise. 16 to 25 year olds were cleaning most regularly, while 55 plus cleaning the least. Apparently, we're not put off by a bit of lime scale, as 11% of Brits have never cleaned the kettle, even though our cleaning obsession has risen after being holed up during home during the pandemic and lockdowns. Over on Instagram, the hashtag Hashtag cleaning motivation has 618,000 posts and hashtag cleaning hacks has 502,000. Whether we're just watching and not doing it is another thing. Wren Kitchens conducted the cleaning survey and found over 3 million Brits rarely clean their toaster, while 16.6% 18 to 24-year-olds clean their kitchen appliances every day. 10% 18 to 24-year-olds clean their oven every day, but only 4% Uh, of over 55s take on the challenge. The same goes for microwaves, where 18% of the younger age bracket clean theirs uh, compared with 13% in the older group. Now, I'm not going to make any excuses here, but many people say to clean their kettles with white vinegar. So you put white vinegar and let it soak, wash it out, boil it up. The trouble is, it tastes like vinegar afterwards. I do not want my PG chips sullied with the taste of vinegar. 
Now, that's no excuse for not cleaning out the kettle, of course. Um, but, you know, these days the kettles don't have those elements right at the bottom where the lime scale gathers. So you're not getting as much uh, lime scale as the 1970s. I mean, the limey scale back in the 1970s was rife. But these days, you, you're not getting as much lime scale. So I don't want vinegary tea. You know, that that's not really... I'm not into the whole kombucha vinegary taste of tea. Have a shot of apple cider vinegar every morning. That is enough vinegar for one day. Unless I'm having fish and chips where I coat everything with vinegar. But not in a not in a tea kettle. If you want to clean the tea kettle out with the vinegar, the best thing to do is don't go Earl Grey because you're going to taste uh, the fragrant Earl Grey with a taste of vinegar. Go for the Lapsang Souchong. That's basically Winston Churchill's favorite tea and tastes like you've uh, stewed and brewed the whole tea uh, with a big fat Cuban cigar in the middle of the pot. Pray silence for the theme from Jaws on a recorder in celebration of Shark Week. this shark week we have a very unlikely combination of brad paisley the country singer uh diving with sharks so country music's very relaxed very nonchalant i don't imagine it with a sort of high adrenaline effort of being in a shark cage or going on a shark dive but you know brad paisley's song i'm gonna miss her the fishing song which he picks uh, casting a line over his girlfriend the country singer celebrates oh looky there i got a bite uh, but now he's plunging into the Cerulean Bahaman waters uh, with a swarm of Caribbean reef sharks. Um, and it's probably not the bite that uh, Paisley uh, is uh, looking to get, uh, one that he may be trying to avoid. And he said, first dive, it was like being thrown into a fire. We pulled up and there's an eight foot sharks going around the boats. Every instinct in your body is this is not the time to get in. Uh, but uh, he did get in, and uh, <laughs> the results can be seen on uh, on Shark Week uh, this year. But in my case, if I was going to get into a swarm of sharks, shark-infested waters, eight-foot uh, Caribbean Bahaman sharks, I would have, to quote Johnny Cash, a ring of fire. You also wonder, after 15, 20 years of Shark Week, if they're running out of ideas so i do have to issue an apology to dr pimple popper sandra lee i assumed wrongly that dr pimple popper was a gentleman and it's a lady sandra lee my mother corrected me on this but dr pimple popper has entertained millions with her extreme pimple popping videos now this week she was heading to turks and caicos with austin gallagher to explore the world of shark skin and how she can apply the science they gather to help human skin conditions. So, I was when I heard that Doctor Pimple Popper was swimming with sharks, I would be I was worried that she was going to start squeezing and oozing the blackhead shark or maybe the great whitehead shark. I mean, it's one thing squeezing spots and pimples on an irate teenager, uh, but if you're squeezing pimples uh, on a back of a great white shark's back that's a little bit more problematic and i don't think uh, any type of acne cream 
would uh, calm down Deep Blue, the great white shark. And if there was a, dare I say, a pizza face shark, then I would leave that pepperoni pimple right there and let it just swim away. Trumple Trombone is back and we kick off with a space watcher claims to have spotted a bright cigar-shaped UFO hurtling past the International Space Station in a crystal clear video. Conspiracy theorist Mr. MBB333 received the video from the follower Mary Hall, who is convinced that she saw a solid object flying past the uh, International Space Station. She claimed that she saw this cylindrical cigar craft flying past on Tuesday, July the 13th. Footage posted on YouTube shows the ISS camera pointing to the dark side of the Earth, and seconds later, a bright, elongated cigar object appears from the top corner of the frame. Reports that Monica Lewinsky was having PTSD due to a possible alien invasion were unfounded. And for over 20 years, a man and a crocodile enjoyed a close, seemingly impossible friendship. Gilberto Chito Shedden found the fearsome beast in 1989 in the banks of Costa Rica's uh, Reservoir River, where it was dying of a gunshot wound. For six months, Chito nursed the mortally wounded croc back to health, feeding it some 70 pounds of chicken and fish every week. Uh, I bet his butcher loved him. I kept giving him the food, he said. At first he wouldn't eat it, and then he began to eat. I kept feeding him the chicken until he started looking good. I would try to pet him so he would feel that he was cared for. Then I would touch him. He would sometimes get a little irritated. So I kept caressing and caressing him. And I'd say, relax, relax. I want to be your friend. Behave nicely because he won't be bothered anymore. But the food wasn't enough. The crocodile needed my love to regain the will to live. Tito spent so much time with his beloved crocodile that his wife left him. Tito wasn't bothered by another wife I could get. But Posho the crocodile was one in a million. Eventually, the animal which Cheeto had named Posho was well enough to be returned to the wild and he released it into the river near his home. But the following morning, Cheeto found his scaly friend sleeping outside his home. The croc had made the decision to remain with his human friend. He began performing with the reptile for small crowds. Once the crocodile followed me home and came to me whenever I called its name, I knew, I could, I knew it could be trained. Gentle behavior was unprecedented. South African filmmaker Roger Horrocks, who made a documentary about Cheeto and Posho, theorized that the bullet wound caused by the farmer trying to protect his livestock might have affected Posho's brain and uh, destroyed his natural predatory instinct. I mean, I would guess he had a croc with benefits. Let's hope he didn't become an Uber Eats or made into a pair of crocs for the croc. And a pioneering device has been invented that turns sweaty fingers into a power source that could recharge batteries. I wonder what would happen if I strapped it to my sweaty head and neck uh, while people sleep scientists reveal. Just wearing it for a 10-hour doze produces enough power to run a watch for 24 hours. The boffins at the uh, University of California, San Diego claim most power-producing wearable devices currently in the market require wearers to perform intense exercise or depend on external sources such as sunlight or uh, large charges in and changes in temperature. But now researchers invented a brand new form of energy harvester that generates power even when the wearer is sat completely still. There's a development that scientists have in described as a holy grail of energy harvesting. The flexible strip wraps around the finger like a plastic uh, sticky plaster and produces small amounts of electricity when the wearer presses down and starts to sweat. I mean, I think I could power London or New York with my sweat. I mean, the amount of sweat that comes off my head I need a thick John McEnroe sweatband to soak up the whole thing. I mean, this is a slippery nipple slope, though. A very slippery slope. I certainly don't want a bottom plug charger 
or MagSafe on my memories. It's been lovely having y'all to the podcast today. Um, it's Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese, episode 104. Hopefully you use this as light, gentle summertime therapy, getting you over the football result if you're English, and just uh, easing back and relaxing in your hammock, swaying gently to and throw to the dulcet tones of Chappy, the English butler. That's almost it. So you've got two choices uh, on the podcast. You've got the audio version, which is across all platforms from Apple to uh, there's an audio version on Spotify. Uh, there's also uh, across iHeartRadio, TuneIn, uh, many different platforms, Pandora. Uh, but there is a musical Love Boat experience on Spotify, part of Anchor FM, uh, where you have the, uh, the basically the Chappie playlist. So some of the some of the tunes on the Chappie playlist this week. Uh, we had a uh, bit of White Snake, uh, some Santana, Ice T, Jamie Cullum, Johnny Cash, Grace Jones, and Elton John. So that's for your audio delectation, uh, whatever you prefer. Or if you just like listening to me ramble on in my ramshackle way, just droning on for about an hour, talking about lots of whimsical nonsense, then the audio version's for you. If you like some tunes punctuating, the uh, Butler Humor, then uh, the Spotify Music Edition, the Butler Emporium Musical Jig will be the option for you. Coming up, the poem. So seasons move on. Spring turns into summer. Summer turns into autumn. Autumn turns into winter. And so does life. Um, I'm going to be moving from Champy Towers very soon uh, and uh, setting up a new, smaller version of Champy Towers in a new place uh, coming up soon. And uh, it's been quite a reflective few weeks, especially this week. And this, uh, this poem's really about moving on. But in this case, it's the train moving on. The train blows its whistle as its rolling begins to slow. The screech of the brakes comes up from below. I finally stand and stretch after the train jutters to a stop. I gather all my luggage and prepare to get off. Going down the aisle, I wave to my friends, wishing them well on their journeys, hoping to see them again. I hop on the train and breathe the fresh air, take a long moment to just stop and stare. New people pass me, pushing to get on the train. Soon enough they were boarded, until it was only I that remained. I've never felt more lonely than I did right there, as the train blew its whistle, leaving me in the square. I never thought I'd miss, but now that it's gone, I have to wonder, did it ever care about me all along? Thank you for listening to the uh, podcast this week. I will be back again for another podcast tomorrow, the Saturday edition of Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese. Until then, cheerio.